This is Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. Hello, my name is Dean Allen and you are listening to Frontierland. In this series, I'll be introducing you to some of the most inspirational people here in South Africa, each with a unique story to tell. Div de Villiers' authoritative yet engaging personality makes for an enlightening and at times humorous interview. But on listening closer, you will learn of the very serious nature of his work and the challenges he and his colleagues face on a daily basis. It's a message every one of us should listen to. Enjoy. Div, uh, this is an interview I've been waiting for. An absolute pleasure to uh, to have you in the studio today and to, to introduce you to our guests. Um, it probably doesn't work on a podcast, but I've just got to describe you to people. I mean, you're you're a giant of a man. I mean, you're six foot five. I think you've got size fifteen feet. You are known as the big protector in these in these parts of the world. You are you are for me an inspiration in terms of what you do for conservation in Eastern Cape. Um, before we go any further, what does the word conservation mean to you, Div? Dean, yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to to speak and and hello to everyone out there. Um, yeah, so conservation to me, I think let's let's look at the 1980s definition, and that's the first thing that I always respond to. It's the wise utilization of our natural resources for the benefit of present generations and future generations. So that's actually the definition. It's the one that I like to use. I think it sort of sums up what conservation is, but um, to be frank, to me, it, it's it's more than that. You know, conservation is is about life. Everything that that we do um, revolves around conservation. It, it, it's about sustaining the natural world, and we depend on the natural world. So, looking after the natural world, I think it's important for all of us to do, and um, and that's really why I got into this profession. I really believe in it. I love the story how you got into the profession and. Uh you know, it was it was quite a round the roundabout way of doing it. Um, your 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 upbringing, your uh, your inspiration in 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 nature, um, but also at an early age. I mean, you were a teenager. You were actually thrust into military service. You came out of, of of that world, which I'm sure taught you a lot of life lessons. And you found yourself at Rhodes University for only three months. Now you've got a PhD now, and I know you've gone back to Rhodes and you've obviously completed those studies. But uh, the early days, they weren't so successful in terms of studies, were they? No, no, the early days weren't very successful. In fact, even even primary school wasn't successful in terms of studies. I was a terrible student. <laughs> I was a terrible pupil. Um, but that's actually where it started. So um, in Residale Primary School in the outskirts of Johannesburg, um, 1960s, there were plots, small holdings, and there was a small school that was established there, Residale Primary School. It was still prefab classrooms. I was, think I was the second intake into that school. And I was pretty much Afrikaans-speaking little boy at that stage, and this was an English school. We had a headmistress, a spinster by the name of Jane Fraser. And this little old lady with her purple hairdo was way ahead of her time. She taught us all about conservation, and every Friday we'd have you know, movies about conservation on those old projectors. Um, we'd have walks to the local dam at Darrenwood. And uh, she'd teach us about birds, teach us about pollution. So, I mean, you're talking about the 1960s. It was way before, you know, most people were talking about conservation and environmental stuff. So I think the seed was sown already that, at that age. Um, and, and, and 
you know, teachers and headmistresses and so forth, obviously a key part of raising anyone. Children look up to them. You know, it's, that, that's, that's who you listen to even more than your, your parents. Um, but then, as you say, I uh, eventually went to the army, and that's our conscription. We had to go for two years in 1981. I, I went into the army deciding that rather than um, just going through two years, I'll, I'll, I'll do the best I can. I'll do everything that I can, everything that's available to me, because I'm quite an adventurous sort of guy. Um, so anything that was available, parachuting, demolitions, mine lifting, um, you know, I did the officer's course, I became an officer, and then I was moved to the, well, in fact, I applied for the 31 Battalion, which was the Bushman Battalion. And there again, that was a life-changing experience. I spent a year with the Bushman. I was a company commander there. And, oh, I mean, what amazing little people. Now, for listeners out there that, that don't understand the apartheid years, I was I was at a, an all-white school. Um, we all, all white kids went to all white schools. I didn't have contact with black people until the army. That was when I lived with them, operated in the bush with them, um, and and the first time that actually real, I realised, you know, these these guys are the same as what I am. They're great people, and I built up such a good relationship with with the bushmen. And of course, everyone knows bushmen are just like the ultimate conservators. They were the hunter gatherers in, in South Africa, so so that was a, a, a definitely a a life-changing experience that, that year up there. And when I was finished in the Caprivi and Angola and so forth, I knew I'm not going back to Johannesburg. Um, I've, I've got to do a career in conservation. I went to Rhodes University. So um, Rhodes being one of the universities that offered a Bachelor of Science, I looked at it. It was far away from where my um, – far away from Johannesburg, first of all, and far away from my parents – you want to get away from your parents. You don't want to come back from the army. And then the other thing that uh, that Rhodes, that the main sort of attraction was that the they advertised that they had six girls to one guy. So, <laughs> so that was the the final pulling point, And off to Rhodes I went. Unfortunately, I didn't last long there, Dean. I was there for three months, as you say, um, just partying too much, just playing rugby, and uh, I won't go into the great details, but I was eventually asked to leave Rose University after just three months. Well, don't they call that the University of Life? I mean, <laughs> that's part of education, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it certainly taught me a few things, though. but uh, the fortunate thing that was, wow, while there was a sort of internal inquiry into my conduct and all the rest, my hooker from the rugby team came in with a newspaper in his hand, and he carried a dispatch in. He said, uh, hey, Tiff, you want to be in conservation? Look at this, the 11 posts available here in Grahamstown, right there in Grahamstown, which is now called Makanda. And um, I grabbed that newspaper and I ran through to the offices of the Nature Conservation. I didn't even know there was a regional office for Nature Conservation in Grahamstown. And it was actually the office for the entire Eastern Cape. And, yeah, I, I had a torn T-shirt. It was messed up with, acid, with an acid explosion that I'd been messing around in the science class with. I, was, I still had acid burns. I remember I couldn't play rugby for roads because of the acid burns on my arm and down my back and that. But um, when I arrived at this office, they said, no, they're, they're urgently looking for, for people to do law enforcement. And the woman at the, re- at the reception, the switchboard, said, go up, and Mr. Edwards is going to interview you. I said, I can't go like this. Look at me. I'm, uh, and she said, no, 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 Bedford Edwards is fine. He'll, he'll interview And uh, she commented a bit on, the, on, on, on how big I was and all the rest, and I'll be a good law enforcement officer. And 
to cut a long story short, uh, I got the job. You know, he gave me a very interesting interview, which I re- I've recorded in one of my books, <laughs> but I won't, I won't put that out there. It was, <laughs> it was certainly different, different to the way that we interview people today. It's amazing how your, your life took that turn. And uh, as I said, uh, three months it rode, it, uh, it led to opportunities clearly in another way. Um, you're part of what's uh, famously known as the, the Green Scorpions. Uh, can you give me an idea of, of how that name came about and the role that they play in, in conservation? Yeah, so obviously my career has, has been very varied, all sorts of conservation that I've been involved in. But um, I was working in the maluti Drakensberg areas of South Africa and the town known as Coxstadt, that's where I was based, working the wild coast, working the Drakensberg mountains and so forth. But I got to a point in my career where I wanted to progress beyond an assistant manager and um, my kids also needed some high schooling. So they would have had to go, go, go to other, other schools if I stayed on in Coxset. And a position was advertised in the Bishu head office for the Eastern Cape and that was to establish a law enforcement unit for the province. This was now in 2007. I decided um, after chatting with my wife and my kids, I decided I was going to go for this, See, you know, because I've done law enforcement. Um, at that stage, I wasn't only doing law enforcement, I was doing all sorts of other things as well, establishing reserves and really nice stuff. And um, yeah, I got the job. I went for the interview and surprisingly, I got the job because when I go for an interview, I'm, I'm, I'm completely open. I will talk about my past. I'll talk about the years in the military, etc., etc. There's no use trying to hide things. And uh, the fact of the matter with affirmative action at that stage and so forth, I really didn't think I was going to get the job. But I was given the, given the job and ended up as um, the Director of Compliance and Enforcement. And we had new legislation recently promulgated, national legislation, not only our provincial laws. Um, and this required us to go for special training to become environmental management inspectors, EMIs as, as they are known. Um, that in effect allows us to do enforcement of the National Environmental Management Act and various other specific environmental management acts like the Biodiversity Act, uh, Water Act, Air Quality Act, and so forth. And it's quite comprehensive training. Um, But the title that you eventually get after that is an environmental management inspector of different levels. So, you know, um, I I was appointed as a a grade one or level one EMI, and um, and that allows me to do a whole lot of different things in, in terms of basically the whole suite of things in terms of that legislation, law enforcement, signing of letters, signing of directives, and so forth. But when Martinus von Skalkweg, who was uh, the environmental minister at the time, was asked about this unit that was now being established across the country, not only at national level, but also in provincial levels, he started talking about the Department of Economic Development, Environmental Affairs and Tourism, Environmental Management Inspectors. And of course, this didn't sound sexy at all. It just didn't have a catchphrase to it. And von Skalkweg, apparently, this is how the story goes, he thought about the Scorpions at the time, the National Prosecuting Authority and the police, the, the specialists, the what is now the known as the Hawks, or that are the, the, the yeah, so the, the specialist unit that that, that we have in the, in the in the police, and instead of calling us the Environmental Management Inspectorate, he decided to call us the Green Scorpions. So he told the media that these guys are the Green Scorpions, and oh, that's how the name came about, and that's how the name is stuck. So we are now known as the Green Scorpions. 
Wow, which is an effective name as well, it's, and it's a lot easier to write, and it's a lot easier to remember than that title that you had before. Uh, listen, in, in your books, because you've written some wonderful books about your experiences over the years, but uh, I read that you described the real heroes of the wildlife wars as the investigators and rangers who work the long hours to solve the crimes and arrest the criminals. Do you think these people get the support they require? No, they're never going to get uh, the support that they require. Um, and, and I really mean those those words about them being the real heroes. You know, I, I was there at one stage I'm, I, for the last number of years. I haven't been there. I've been in the managerial corridors and those, those ivory towers and, and trying to make it easy for those people that are the real heroes to actually do their work. So whereas I do still get in the field as much as I possibly can, those guys that are, are tirelessly working on the ground um, are the ones that deserve all the accolades um, and and budgets are poor, conditions are poor. Um, you know, if, if they work in a good team, then certainly they get some support, but they don't, certainly don't get the financial support for it. They don't get sufficient time off for the hard work that they put in. Um, but I must say, you know, those, those are the days that I must, because if you really believe in conservation, then that's where you want to be. At the at the coal face, as it you were. You want to be at the yeah. coal face. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. no, that's 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 the place to go to. So, um, yeah, one day I'll get back there. <laughs> I mean, one of the most high profile, of course, uh, causes that we've got, and it's it, unfortunately it does affect us here in the Eastern Cape, but certainly it's a, a Southern African, if not a world problem, is is the poaching of certain endangered or certainly um, prized species, and the, and the rhino, of course, is it gets a lot of attention in terms of that. Um, Having having looked at what you've done in the past, Div, are you? It's not just about rhino; it's about uh, different species, and we'll talk about that going on. But the rhino certainly uh, captures the imagination of the public, and and rightly so. Um, you were you were, I believe, involved in the very first uh, rhino poaching incident here in in the Eastern Cape at Shamwari. Can you can you remember what happened? Yeah, maybe just a, a quick little background about about rhino and that you know we we all know that it's one of these south african success stories the conservation success stories we know how uh, ian player in particular led with a team obviously of of, of people but uh, led the the rehabilitation of or the reintroduction of of rhino and the reintroduction of populations in various areas uh, when when rhino were on the brink of extinction so we've all looked up to the to the guys of that era that accomplished such a, a, a monumental feat. Um, uh, Eastern Cape is a province that has quite a lot of rhino. One of the species in the South Africa's got two species. We've got white rhino and we've got black rhino. Eastern Cape is predominantly black rhino. That's the the rhino that that has historically occurred here. And and we've got a you know we're very proud of our population of of, of black rhino. And we never had a, a poaching incident of all the years since the project of player in them and uh, whereas other parts of the country had been experiencing at least some poaching now around about 2005 there was a, a bit of a spike you could see the spike in rhino poaching it hadn't hit the eastern cape yet but we started losing rhino horns there were thefts of rhino horns 2005 2006 2007 museums were hit game farms were hit um, even armed robberies of some of the museums. People were tied up in the Amatola Museum, for example, the curators and that, and horns were lassoed off the walls. So we realized that this is just a matter of time before the poaching was going to hit the Eastern Cape. And lo and behold, it was December 2008, 
that I got a call. I was around the Bry fire. It was about half past eight in the evening. And I got a call from my 2IB, which is uh, my second in charge uh, at, at that stage, Pinar. And he said to me, I don't just remember his words, he said, Rhino down. And, uh, and we'd been talking about it for so long, I knew exactly what he was talking about. And um, asked him where it was, he said, no, it was Shamwari. Now, Shamwari is one of the prime private game reserves in South Africa. And we decided we, we couldn't go to Shamwari at that stage because it was evening. Um, it's got lion and dangerous predators and that around as well. It's not possible to go and do a crime scene at that time of the night. So we decided we'd be there the first, first light the next morning. Shamwari is about a three-hour drive from, from East London where I was. So it was up very early and, and off I went and met Yap as the sun was rising at Shamwari. And we went to the poaching scene. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's difficult to describe the first time that you see such a magnificent beast lying in the felt and it's peppered with AK-47 wounds. It's lying dead and it's, uh, it, it just knocks the wind out of your sails. Um, so what had basically happened there was poachers had shot this rhino with the AK-47. And they weren't very accurate, so they'd sprayed it full of, of bullets. And there was a game guy that was out that night with tourists. And he'd had a particularly interesting sighting of lions, so he stayed out a bit later than what he was supposed to. And that was not supposed to happen. So the poachers were, were in the felt thinking no one else was there. And he heard the automatic fire going, he heard the, the shooting, and he, and he radioed through. Um, and then he actually saw the rhino run past the, the, the vehicle as well, with blood coming out of its nostrils and, and mouth. So the poachers were disturbed, and they never removed the horns. And the rhino ran about two kilometers before it finally died. That's what we came across, and that's how we started our investigation. I was um, working then with the South African Police Services, and that, that, as I say, that was the, the beginning of it all in the Eastern Cape, but escalated from there. Eventually, there were syndicates that were operating with using dart guns and M99 tranquilizers, sawing off the horns of rhino while they were still alive, so they bled to death. Horrible stuff, really horrible stuff. Do you ever get used to that kind of experience? I mean, do you, do you have to desensitize yourself? Because it must be quite a harrowing thing to, to witness. I don't think you ever get completely used to it, but you do tend to desensitize yourself. And it's something that we've got to wa watch against because especially the investigators that have seen, you know, some investigators have seen hundreds of rhinos um, that are dead and it, it becomes a part of their daily, daily duty. Now, my team, I've always said to them, always remember that the, the rhino that you're seeing there, um, the owners of that rhino perhaps have never seen a dead rhino before. It's, in, in many cases, it's almost like their baby that's lying there. So we've always got to be mindful to show respect, show respect to the animal, which comes without saying anyway. But really, you know, be, be respectful of the people that are, are around there. You don't want everyone around a crime scene, but obviously the owners and they do see the animal that's, that's lying dead. And yeah, you do desensitize yourself to some degree. It's all part of um, understanding how, how nature works and how certain species, obviously, because of man, because of this um, demand for something like a rhino horn that has, has developed. Is there any way we can control the demand, perhaps? Is it through education or is it, do we have to stop it at the ground level? I mean, where does this chain need to be broken in terms of, in terms of the, the destruction of a potential destruction of a species that's held so dear to us here in Africa? That's for sure. Yeah, look, law enforcement is only a stopgap stop measure in this, in this whole rhino war, as a lot of people call it. Um, 
ultimately, you know, it's going to be through education and through through people deciding not to use rhino horn. So I often get asked the question, you know, am I pro rhino horn trade or am I against it? And it's a very difficult one for me to answer because there are pros and cons to both both ideas. Um, you know, you, you can potentially flood the market. Some people say you can't flood the market. We don't really know. Are you going to be able to flood the market? Aren't you going to be able to flood the market? You know, lots of species have, have, have been successfully um, traded, and in that way they, their conservation has been secured. You're thinking species like the Nile crocodile, the ostrich. You know, in our Eastern Cape province, the hunting of the fowl rubbock, the grey rubbock, it's a massive conservation success story on the brink of extinction. And then hunters came and looked after it and said, there's a price on this, on this animal. It's got a magnificent straight horn. Um, and suddenly uh, everyone wanted grey rubbock. And now, you know, you've got a decent population of grey rubbock. So the list can go on and on. Um, but rhino is a different kettle of fish or a different animal to where you look at it. But it is um, it, it's, it's an emotive, for one. It's a flagship species. It's one of our big five. It's, it's questionable. Should, should one, you know, put these rhino into paddocks and then harvest their horn because the horn keeps growing. If you, if you cut it off, it continues to grow. So it can be harvested sustainably. Um, and, and there are models and ideas to look at it in that way. It makes, it makes some sense. But the other thing is the ethical question. But we, you know, science has, has determined that rhino horn does not actually work in reducing um, fever. It does not work, um, as in later years people have said, as an aphrodisiac. It does not work for, for various things that it is a hangover cure. That was one of the later ones that came out in a cancer cure. So why, why should we then want to trade in something that we know doesn't work? So my take on it, after speaking to a lot of people, like Colin Bell and like the Wilderness Foundation of Africa, and we, we debate these things many a time. I think I'm leaning more towards education, getting getting the next generations that are going to come to just say, guys, we don't need rhino horn. The rhino horn needs to be on the rhino. You know, I'd, I'd like to see the end of at the end of the day. I'd like I'd, I'd like to see that scenario play out um, in the next twenty years. Your role protects not only rhino but but all species endangered. Um, talk a little bit about a plant species, the cycad, which is probably not so well known, not so high profile, but also has an important part on our ecosystem um, and is also very important in here in Eastern Cape, isn't it, in terms of our culture and wildlife? Yeah, plants plants aren't unfortunately as sexy as as big big and hairy wildlife like the rhino so they don't get as much attention i know i've, I've struggled over the years to even get television programs to follow the work that we do in combating smuggling of cycads smuggling of, of succulents um and the clearing of the thicket species it's a it's a felt type that only sort of occurs here on the eastern cape and it's it's being destroyed before our eyes but um, to get back to the cycads, they are particularly rare plants. Um, the Eastern Cape have a number of species of cycads. They're endangered now. All of them are considered endangered. Some of them have been wiped out of the felt completely, so that you don't get them in the natural environment anymore. And, and some of them are, you know, they're, they're just basically a handful that's left. And the big market there is, is for landscaping, and particularly to the Gauteng, Johannesburg market. So over the years... Certainly from the 1980s, there's been a, a lot of trade in, in that. And they're actually quite valuable plants. So it's lucrative to, to have people take these plants out of the felt and transport them to, to Johannesburg or wherever the target market is. 
uh, obviously the people that are digging them out get paid a pittance. And then you get couriers that will take them up through to, to Gauteng. The landscapers or the nurseries or whatever in, the, in, in that market there will then benefit substantially because sometimes it's a, it's a few thousand rand for a couple of centimeters. And, and these plants can get big. You get plants that are four or five meters tall in some species. Um, yeah, so we've, we've concentrated on, on that, that um, organized crime, on those syndicates that have been in, involved in that. And when we established a special investigation unit in, in the Eastern Cape in around about 2009, we had tremendous success in bringing down a number of those syndicates. At one stage, we had 42 people in jail, and that's people from across the racial divide. There were black guys, white guys, colored, name it. People were in, in, in jail, and, and, and that was sending a, an immensely strong message out that Eastern Cape's not tolerating smuggling of, of psychiatrists. Now, those prison sentences varied from seven years to 11 years. So it, it, it wasn't a slap on the wrist. And that's where you can see enforcement working because there was zero, absolutely zero psychiatric poaching while these guys were sitting in jail. Unfortunately, recently there's, there's been an amnesty and a lot of those psychiatric poachers have been released from jail and they're back at it. They've gone straight back to their old ways because it's what they know and it's, it's, it's a lucrative industry to be in and, it, and it's quite difficult to, to catch them, unlike things like cash in transit and some of the other crimes which are more high risk. You know, dealing in, in, in plants is something that you can have a pretty good chance of getting away with. It's probably I, I wasn't aware of this trading in psychas, which is which is uh, opened my eyes up to the fact that uh, we tend to think about rhino poaching and other endangered species, but it's all about protecting our ecosystem, isn't it? It starts from it starts from the plants, the flora, the fauna, um, to go up to the big, as you said, the big five. Uh, just to lighten the mood a little bit, though, one of my favourite stories we shared over dinner last night was uh, was a, a story involving we've already mentioned Yark Pina, one Christmas and a psychad. What happened? Mm. Yeah, look, they're, they're, you know, obviously there, there's some horrible moments in conservation, but I've been at it for 40 years and there's been some great moments as well. So the camaraderie that there's been, the teamwork, all of that, that is just so special. And, and you meet a lot of characters along the way. So one of the great characters of the Eastern Cape, a very, very good friend of mine, and uh, I mean, we've been colleagues for forever, is Yarp Pinar. So he's, he's a large fellow um, and really enjoys his entertainment and entertaining people and, and telling stories and so forth. Anyway, he's extremely committed to conservation as well. And it was one December that he was coming back from Overston, which is a town right up in the Free State border. And he was driving back to, to PE, as it was known then, where he was living, looking forward to getting back to his wife and kids for some Christmas. And he was going through in his uh, Ford, Ford Cortina at the time, um, racing through the, the, the roads of the Eastern Cape and nearing PE in a place called Alexandria, just between Alexandria and, and PE. And there on oncoming traffic, he saw a vehicle with a psychiatrist tied onto the roof, being transported and coming in the opposite direction. And he thought to himself, jeez, I've got Christmas waiting for me over here. And now this fool is driving in open daylight, broad daylight with a psychiatrist, massive psychiatrist tied to his roof with the, with the leaves all tied down, as these smugglers very often do. They tie the leaves, these spiky leaves of psychiatrists to, the, to their trunk. So, you know, with a little bit of hesitation, he decided, no, you'll chase this guy. And he broadied off the road then, put his blue light on, started flashing his lights and chasing this vehicle with a psychiatrist on the roof. And he reckons he was working his way through the gears and eventually he was catching up on this vehicle. And as he got closer, he saw in the back of the vehicle two kids with their eyes, as he said, bigger than 
bigger than Pirings, because he's Afrikaans, so Pirings are saucers, his eyes bigger than Pirings. And as he got closer, he saw that there was a woman in the car as well, in the passenger seat, but he flashed the lights and the car pulled over. And he got out and he walked towards the vehicle, and he just saw the fear in the people's eyes. And the husband opened the door and got out and started walking towards him. And that's when he looked at the at the psychic on the roof and he realized it was one of those plastic Christmas trees that had been wrapped. <laughs> so the poor guy said to Yap, you know, what I do wrong? He said, no, no, my name is, you done nothing wrong. My name is Yap Pinar. I'm from Nature Conservation. I just would like to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas. <laughs> no, it's a wonderful story. And as I said, I'm sure humor just must keep you sane in your job, which is, uh, which is let's face it, it helps us all in this day and age um just to just to uh, think about the future because it is all about you know today is all about the future the future of our planet etc what is the future of conservation and security it's certainly here in the eastern cape but nationally as well um there's a there's a suggestion perhaps that maybe going private will be part of part of the direction we take what do you think i mean what are your hopes for the future Dean, I think we all know that um, economically the country's in a bit of a bad way and we've been hit by a whole lot of massive problems from COVID through to unrest. And, um, the priorities that the government have that they've, they've got to put money into, um, I would like to say that environment is one of the priorities, but you know, you've got health, you've got uh, the security, the policing, education, all very important um, fields that the government has, has to put money into. So let's be realistic, and I don't think we're going to get much money in our budgets for in, environmental affairs and conservation. The budgets have been cut for the last number of years. They've really been cut to the bone. And I think that the future relies on partnerships with the private sector. So I really believe that um, you know businesses and uh, the public and communities are going to have to come to the fore non government organizations non profit organizations um, philanthropists people that uh, really believe in conservation and have the ability to put money towards it and to put time towards it and vol- voluntarily um, assist the government the government will always play a part so um, they have to be there there's, there's, there's got to be rules uh, legislation has to be complied with you know, you can't just have every Tom, Dick and Harry doing whatever they, whatever they want to. But I think that those those partnerships are key if we're going to have conservation, in you know, real meaningful conservation um, going off into the future. And South Africa has been a leading country in the field of conservation for many years, well over, well over a century. We've been one of the top countries in the world. So we're going to have to think out of the box in this one. And, and hopefully we can get people together that come up with those sorts of ideas. But it's definitely going to be more and more coming from the private sector. You've already mentioned organisations like the Wilderness Foundation that have proven they have, they've been there for a long time. We've just celebrated their 50th year, year for example. Um, they, they've proven to have a success rate, longevity. How can people out there who want to do good, who want to give support, how can they do so? Because I'm sure there's been a few unscrupulous bodies out there that in the name of conservation have taken people's money and perhaps not used it in the right way yeah i think uh, uh, that's a very important point you know especially i i think of when the uranus first started falling how many of these non-government organizations and fundraisers suddenly jumped up at one stage i remember we had more than 400 fundraising bodies pleading for for money and people willingly donating because they just saw the atrocities being committed to these poor, poor creatures. 
Um, but unfortunately, you know, only two, perhaps three of those organizations actually gave money to us in the Eastern Cape, um, which just shows how many sharks there can be out there. So I think people that have, have the financial means to, to donate to conservation just need to do a little bit of homework, see which organizations have a good track record, who's really providing um, a service to conservation. And, and, and those, those are the areas that, that money should be directed. But it's not, only, it's not only about finance. A lot of people have time. A lot of people have um, different skills, uh, perhaps, you know, like attorneys, um, helicopter pilots, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they volunteer their time. Now, there's a system that's there's provision in the legislation for honorary nature conservation officers or, to put it in other terms, volunteers. And, and and I think that that is one of the one of the key things for the future as well is is that we need to just drive that process, get more volunteers established um, and and designated. And it's not a new thing because when Cape Nature Conservation started in 1952, Dr. Douglas Hay already had honorary nature conservation officers appointed. In fact, there were 500 in the Cape at one stage, and they were very proud that 20 of those were women. So. <laughs> I think at the moment the honorary officers we we uh, we depend on them we, we we depend on them for a lot of assistance in terms of just patrols compliance monitoring visibility so the national parks and and the Isambelo Kaiser and wildlife use them a lot for work in the protected areas um yeah and even the Eastern Cape Parks and Tourism Agency have friends of the Bavians Kloof and so forth so 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 the time and and, and expertise of those volunteers is, is very important. Well, Div, I'd, I'd just like to finish by saying thank you for your f- uh, almost 40 years of service. Quite an incredible journey. Do you look back now and uh, with a sense of pride or a f- almost frustration that uh, you've not eradicated these crimes that have given you a job over that time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's been a fantastic, fantastic ride of 40 years. The experiences, the friendship, the team as I, as I mentioned earlier, just the teamwork, the people that you've met along the way, both within the department and outside, has, has been absolutely fantastic. I hope it's going to carry on when I, you know, when I when I leave this department um, and go into the private sector and go into the future. I certainly don't want to leave conservation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's mixed emotions because you've you've certainly accomplished quite a lot. Um, I think that the, the rewards have been like where conservancies and protected areas have been established and you've been one of the driving forces in getting teams together to actually get that off the ground. That to me is some of the, the great um, rewards of the, of the past 40 years, the work on the wild coast, uh, that magnificent wild coast, which I'm so fond of, and the Maluti Dragonswick Transfrontier Project. There are just so many things that have been absolutely fantastic to, to be a part of. But the law enforcement, um, it's, it's got to be done. They know that legislation, that's your Bible. That's what you have to learn from when you start in conservation. You must know this is my Bible. I must know what's going on here because this drives everything. This is what it's all about. And um, unfortunately, there are also people that have to enforce that law. And that's not always the most pleasant task. And the people that are enforcing it aren't always looked upon as being the, you know, the favorite people of society. Um, but there's also a way in which you enforce the law. And you, you've, you've got to do it with, with the... You know, considering the dignity of the people that even though they may be poachers, even though they may be criminals, you enforce the law in such a way that you still have respect for the people that are being arrested to a degree. You know, I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's very difficult at times, especially if it's been a horrible crime and to, to do something with respect and, and show dignity. But that's what you've actually got to do. Um, 
but seeing that devastation continuously on, on, on almost a daily basis uh, is, is hard. You know, people that are right there at the coal face of, of, of rhino poaching, I think of the guys in the Kruger pocket. Every day we'd see at least one dead rhino. Uh, it's, it's not the most pleasant experience. It's, it, it's something that, you know, law enforcement something that, that can get you down. Um, and, and you don't see the, you know, perhaps don't see the bigger picture. You don't see the rewards like someone that's in a reserve doing reserve management. They're not immediately apparent. It's very nice when people come to you um, sometimes and say, geez, you know, are you so-and-so? Well, thanks so much for all the hard work that you've been doing um, in, in putting criminals behind bars, in doing law enforcement, in trying to, you know, keep keep the Eastern Cape a beautiful province. You know, then it, then there's a little bit of reward and you realize, oh, actually, maybe we've we've made some difference. No, you've certainly made a difference. And uh, in the time I've spent in your company, you can see the, the difference you make to people around you. Um, you're an ambassador for not only wildlife, but for this province. And for that, I thank you. And uh, I wish you all the best in the future. But conservation needs you. The world needs you. So please don't go retiring too soon, will you? <laughs> no. Thanks, Dean. And thanks for all that you're doing as well. Um, and, you know, recording everything that's been going on in the province, I think it's 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 so important. You know, I've, it was one of the one of the reasons why I wrote a few books, recording those stories, trying to remember the characters that that they've been, and remembering some of the the stories of conservation in the Eastern Cape. So you've got a very important task, and uh, I look forward to giving you some assistance in the future. Pleasure, thank you. That was Frontierland with Dr. Dean Allen. For more podcasts, visit algoafm.co.za. I hope you found this episode both entertaining and inspirational. Please do download, share and subscribe to the podcast so that we can highlight the positive stories coming out of our nation. South Africa is indeed a special place with special people. You can find out more about me at my website, deanallen.co.za. Please do get in touch. So until next time, please be kind to yourself and others. Goodbye.